When you become a widow, the heartache can be overwhelming. You feel lost, you feel broken, you feel alone, and sometimes you feel like the pain will never go away. I believe that every widow has the capacity to endure, the power to overcome, and the determination to create a new life filled with meaning and purpose. That's why I wanted to create a show called Widow 180. People tell me they come here for the positivity. They listen to Widow 180, the podcast, to be inspired. They come to Widow 180 to be reminded that they have options, that the pain of loss is not a life sentence. Widow 180 is about turning tragedy, loss, and fear into strength, creativity, and a new passion for life. My mission each week is to arm you with these powerful stories of transformation and knowledge so that you can navigate life after loss. I'm Jen Zwink. I'm so glad you're listening. Let's get to the episode. When you become a widow, the heartache can be overwhelming. You feel lost, you feel broken, and sometimes you just feel like the pain will never go away. But I believe that every widow has the capacity to endure, the power to overcome, and the determination to create a new life with meaning and purpose. And that's why I wanted to create a show called Widow 180. Widow 180 is about turning tragedy, loss, and fear into strength, creativity, and a new passion for life. My mission each week is to arm you with these powerful stories of transformation and knowledge so that you can navigate life after loss. I'm Jen Zwink. I'm so glad you're listening. Let's get to the episode. Welcome back, podcast listeners. My special guest this week is Annalena Madison, who lost her husband, Curtis, six years ago. She has been raising their six children, but she has made some pretty bold moves and made some big changes in the last six years. So I wanted her to come on the show and share the things that she's done. And I want her to be an example for you guys of being bold and being confident and taking charge of your life and taking responsibility for your own happiness. And these are all of the qualities that I see in Annalena. So Annalena, thank you so much for being here today. Sure. I'm glad <laughs> to be here. Thank you. When I get started, um, well, maybe just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I'm almost 57. I was born and raised uh, in Denmark, so I'm an immigrant. I came here the first time when I was 16 as an exchange student and fell, fell in love with America. And all I could think about when I went back home, you know, and go and started college, I was like, oh, I want to go back to America. Uh, just, so I did. And my parents were like, no, you're not. And then as soon as I turned 18, I'm like, I'm out of here. <laughs> so <laughs> I came here with um, two suitcases and $1,000 in my pocket. And I've kind of, I've lived the American dream, you know, in many ways. So um, I couldn't get a green card because, you know, I'm not, Denmark's not a, like a protected country or something like that where you, you know, you can seek asylum or anything like that. So I actually joined the Marine Corps to get my green card. And that's different. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I did think about joining the Air Force in Denmark, so it's not totally insane, but <laughs> yeah, the Marines, right? You know, um, yep. So I served in the Marines, then I got married. I married a Marine and started a family and um, got out of the Marines, obviously. And then um, 
I used my GI Bill and went to school, went to college, got my bachelor's and got my master's. And um, then my husband at the time got out and bummed around, couldn't get a job and would get a job. And he was, I don't know what was wrong with Things fell apart. And I came home and caught him in bed with the nanny. So that was nice. (gasps) (laughs) What? It was a long time ago now, you know, this is 93. Yeah, 93. So we had two kids. Oh my God. Um, oh my God. And uh, I can't even do the math on how old they were, but I think the youngest was like two. So two and seven, maybe something like that. So anyway, so I was a single mom for a while mm-hmm. and, and I met Curtis and I was like, yeah, we can date. I'm not good at this marriage thing. I'm, I'm not interested in getting married. Um, I was 31. He was 35 and he's like you know you should give it another try and he just kept (laughs) and um so we got married 18 months after we met in church you know the whole thing and yeah a big military wedding he was in dress blues and okay so I should say he was in the army I I guess I have a thing for guys in uniforms right yeah (laughs) So, yeah, we had the big wedding and everything, and that was totally for him. I'm like, can we just go to Reno, you know, and, you know, (laughs) or Vegas and do the deed? We live close to Reno, about an hour and a half from Reno in California, Northern California. And uh, he's like, no, I want to get married in church. He'd never been married. You know, he was a bachelor and no kids. And, And he was so great with my kids. You know, he was just so great. And they started calling him daddy and Aww. yeah, you know, and he's like, and before we got married, he's like, can we have another baby? And I said, yeah, okay, sure. You know, <laughs> so <laughs> we got married. We had already started trying, nothing happened. And um, so turns out long story short, it was me. and wasn't him. I figured it would be him since I already had kids, but so I did the fertility shots, did run around and we had a boy. And then pretty soon he's like, you know, we should really have another one because he's so much younger than the other two. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I'd already, I'd sold my business. I had started a business um, when I was in my first marriage. I started a payroll and accounting service so that I could be home with my kids. And that's, and I finished grad school and night school at the same time. But um, (laughs) he's like, just one more. And I'm like, okay, fine. You know, I'm already at stay at home mom. The baby was a year old. I was, you know, deep in diapers and all that. Yeah, sure. So we did a not one more round of low dose fertility shots, like the lowest dose you can do. And boom, triplets. (laughs) So yeah. So we went from three kids to six kids and uh, it's been it's been a wild ride. I, I got to say, it's been a wild ride. But that they, is incredible. <laughs> able to carry them along enough that they were almost four and a half pounds each and they wow. came up breathing on their own and they have absolutely no problems. And now one of them six, three or four. I don't know. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> so so they- now today, you know, my kids are, I have triplets that are 18. I have, so that's two boys and a girl. The youngest is a girl. And then I have boy, the, a boy that's 20 a girl that's 29 
and a boy that's 35. <laughs> so, wow. Big span. Yeah. Yes. Yep. That is an amazing and, story in itself. <laughs> so we were just trucking along, you know, I, uh, I started, um, you know, I was home with all these kids and, uh, it was pretty wild. And I had, I had a rental home, uh, when I met Curtis and uh, we, we decided to start buying up little starter homes and fix them up and rent them out. You know, we didn't flip, we just kept them. So that was, that's what I did. Basically. He just, you know, he's like, okay, I'll sign here. <laughs> yeah. He was in the army. And, um, when the babies were a year old, he had to go to the Gulf war. And so he was gone for 16 months and then he came back and he went in the reserve. So he's army reserve at this point and working full time and he finished his master's degree. So we're a busy family. Wow. And then I did the, I did the, you know, the landlady thing, I guess you can say landlord, landlady, whatever. And, uh, I, I'm still doing that. So, but, um, we're just trucking along, you know, the kids are going to school and, you know, we're, we're very focused on saving for retirement. We wanted him to retire when he was 55 so that we could start traveling and stuff. And as soon as the kids were out of high school, we were going to be like, you know, live in Costa Rica for six months of the year or whatever that we had huge, we had big plans and, you know, yeah. he worked super hard. I worked super hard putting money away. And then he got sick. He was 52. So this is 19. I mean, is 2013. Okay. He got sick from one day to the next. Now keep in mind, he's still in the army reserve. He's still ghost on duty. He's, he's running, he's fit. He's, you know, he has a, a, a military um, physical every year, you know, blood work, all that. And he was fit as far as we knew. And then um, one day he had back pain and, you know, it's like after three days of that, he went to the doctor, his buddies, he wouldn't go to the doctor when I said, go to the doctor. You know how it is. You know how guys yeah. are. But as soon as his buddy said, oh, you probably have kidney stones. You should go to the doctor. Then he went to the doctor. Okay. And long story again, you know, but he was diagnosed um, two days later with stage four kidney cancer. They didn't even do a, a biopsy. They took a, you know, they took a, an x-ray and they couldn't see any kidney stones. So they did a CAT scan the next day. Cause also coincidentally, you know, he had blood in the urine when he went to the doctor and uh, she didn't like that. So this is our family doctor. And um, she called us in two days later and she's like, she started crying. You know, she saw me, the kids, you know, she knew our family. And she just didn't even know how to break the news to us. She's like, they say it's stage four. There's, you know, there's stuff in the lungs. There's stuff in the liver. You know, the the tumor had eaten his kidney and looked enormous, like took up the whole one side of his torso. Oh, my gosh. And, um, you know, we, I started calling around. I, we were in outside of Sacramento. I didn't want him to just go to a nephrologist. You know, I wanted, that's a kidney doctor, uh, for those who don't know. Um, I wanted him to go to an oncologist nephrologist. Yeah. And I started, I called Stanford. I called UC Davis. I called UCSF. UCSF could see us as soon as, that's a two and a half hour drive, three hours in traffic, you know? Yeah. Um, so we went there a few days later and uh, they, 
schedule surgery. He had a huge surgery, um, 10 hour surgery, um, three weeks after he was diagnosed. They took out a tumor, a three and a half pound tumor. That was, they said it was the size of a grown man's head. Oh, he didn't know. And they said, because you're in such good shape, it kind of masked the symptoms. And it wasn't until it started pressing on other organs that he had the pain. So, um, and then they put him on medication. So here's something I did not know. I'm sure a lot of people don't know. Um, Regular chemo and radiation does not work on kidney cancer. Really the cure to kidney cancer is to catch it early, take the kidney out with the tumor and you're good to go because you have another kidney. Right. But he was so sick, you know, and they were going to just close him up. Had it not been a teaching hospital there to close him up and send him home, but they got it out. And he had a, you know, an 18 inch incision from the middle of his belly all the way around his back. So, you know, even just that, you know, cutting all those muscles and they're like, we didn't have to take out a rib. I'm like, what? You, you do that? But they didn't with him. So I guess he was lucky and sort of, you know, Man. and so really there was only experimental treatments. Um, there was one thing that had been approved and, and he tried that and, and things kept growing. So then he started doing experimental treatments and we did that for 22 months until he died. You know, he, he lost a hundred pounds. He looked like a skeleton. His hair turned white from one of the medications that he took overnight. It was crazy. And next they told us to expect it. Next morning he wakes up, every hair on his body was white, (gasps) Santa white, you know, and uh, his eyebrows, his eyelashes, everything weird yeah that was really trippy and then you know when people are very sick with cancer they get kind of a gray tone to their skin so it was it was hard to watch i would like to invite you to get our latest freebie designed just for you how to get your life back together after loss a 10-step checklist After countless hours of research, interviewing hundreds of widows, and through my own experience with grief, I have compiled this list of the 10 steps you need to take to put your life back together after losing a loved one. It's normal to feel overwhelmed and also normal to not know where to start when it comes to picking up the pieces of your shattered world. Here's where you start. You can get this free 10-step checklist at www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. Um, when he was first diagnosed, I mean, how did you guys talk to the kid? The kids were, the younger ones were 12 mm-hmm. at that time. Oh no. Yes. yes. They were 12. No. Well, no, they, they were, were 10. 10 when he got diagnosed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 10 and 12. Yeah. Did you tell well, them, like, how did the, how did that go? I mean, I know that that was bad, but how was uh, that conversation? Did you sit down with them and, and have both of you have a conversation and just keep it very real yeah, and very yeah. honest? Or did yeah, you, d- did you try to just be really positive about it and not make a big deal ab- about it? 
Cause we kind of didn't make a big deal out of it. So we, we had a Sunday morning ritual. We always made cinnamon rolls and scrambled eggs and they were old enough that they started helping cook and stuff. And we would sit down, you know, and have, you know, breakfast around the table. And, um, this is like a couple of days before the surgery. And we told them, we're like, you know, just kind of conversational you know hey you know how mom and dad have been gone a lot and you know we were gone overnight sometimes and grandma would babysit um and say dad dad's got you know he's got a problem with his kidney and you know he's gonna need surgery and uh they're like well what kind of problem we're like well you know there's some cells that are growing and one of them they're pretty smart cookies one of them's like oh you mean cancer <laughs> we're like yeah yeah it's it's cancer but they're gonna take it out and you know it'll be good you know yeah. it's, it'll be good for him to get that out of there and then we just kind of left they're like oh okay well that's good you know and we just kind of left it at that and you know and everybody's chewing on their food and stuff and then you know when there really wasn't we asked them if they had questions and they didn't and um you know, after a few minutes, we're like, well, you know, you guys can come and ask us any questions you want, and we'll always tell you what's going on. And that was really it. Um, they watched us. You know, we were gone all the time. I, we, he spent over 100 days in the hospital, and I always slept on the cot next to him. He was very adamant about me being there because he was often whacked out on medication, and he wanted me to be his advocate. Yeah. I made most of the decisions, which was hard. And he just always thought he was going to beat this. I mean, you know, and so we had this huge fight at one point, you know, and I threw something because (laughs) I was so frustrated and angry and I'm pretty, you know, even killed person, but I had so much penned up frustration and anger and, you know, and he didn't want to talk about, um, what if, you know, he didn't want to talk about long-term plans, you know, so we did redo our trust. We had a trust because he's in the military and he had gone, you know, to the war and we had already established a trust so that our paperwork was in order, but the trust was so old that um, the youngest kids weren't in it. Just by any other kids kind of thing. Um, So we, we sat down with the lawyer early on and we redid our trust and we made sure everything, we had all, all our ducks in a row. And then he didn't want to talk about it. And it was very frustrating to me. He didn't, we, we never, we never, we had that one big fight and he's like, Oh, so you think I'm going to die? I'm like, well, you got stage four cancer. You know, I probably didn't say it like that, but you know, it's like, can we just at least talk about this? So I know what you want. Yeah. And we never did. And then it felt like, according to the doctors, you know how they they really don't want to give you time frames anymore, but they basically, when we pushed him, they gave him six to nine months um, when he was diagnosed and he lived 22. So that was pretty crazy. Yeah. But he did these horrible, horrible treatments. Like he did this one treatment. It's like an immunotherapy and he had to be in the ICU and they made him so sick with this it's almost like a chemo drug but they have to infuse it every four hours for like seven days and it makes you incredibly sick and it's to trick the immune system into thinking you know when it comes kind of reboots and comes back on 
that it sees the cancer because you know immune systems don't see cancer or cancer wouldn't be allowed to grow and it works in like at the time i worked in about 17 percent of the cases okay and he did all that and i was you know next to him watched all this and he would get so sick so incredibly sick from this every four hours you know and um oh that's so hard it didn't, it didn't work you know and uh the tumors kept growing and you know pretty soon he had a tumor in his uh, liver that was the size of a grapefruit and he had all these his first CAT scan just so showed like little pinpricks in the lungs and they're like, that's probably not good, but it's so small. We don't know. They started growing and they were filling his lungs and, you know, everybody's like, well, can't you do some more surgery? Well, you can't really do surgery when you've got cancer all over the body, you know, uh, once it's systemic, I guess they call it. It's, it's all over. Cut yeah. everything out, you know? Um, yeah. So, well, so you said that um, Curtis, did tell you that he he wanted to die at home yeah so we did um at the very end he was on oxygen and he was you know he, he wasn't work he kept going back to work every time you know they put him out on disability he'd go back to work they had offered him social security disability from the start so he could have stayed home and he's like no i'm going crazy i'm going back to work when he went on oxygen, he couldn't go to work anymore. He couldn't drive. He was on so, so much medication. He banged up the car a couple of times. I was mad about that because, you know, it's like, and I begged the doctors to tell him he couldn't drive anymore. And they're like, oh, he'll know when he can't drive. I'm like, no, he doesn't. Oh, no. He's banged up the car twice. I didn't allow him to have the kids in the car anymore. Oh, well, then, no. then the oxygen happened and he was on oxygen about a month before he died. And, um, he said, well, so hospice, hospice got involved because I pushed it and he's like, it's, you know, whatever, it's too soon, but you know, that's good. Maybe if I do die, I want to die at home. And so we were trying to get a hospital bed and set, and we just barely got set up on hospice. And then he took a turn. He couldn't breathe. And I, took him back to UCSF instead of going to the local emergency room. We'd had, we'd been to the local hospital, the local emergency room for some things and like blood transfusions and stuff. And he always bungled everything. And I'm like, I'm not taking him local. He needs to see his doctor and he couldn't breathe. And like, he had a, like a monitor that you put on your finger and it, would, it kept flatlining. And I'm just like, Oh my God, I know he, I can see him breathing, but he wasn't getting any oxygen. Yeah. So I took him down there. Like, late in the evening i drove like a crazy person you know we made it in like an hour and 45 minutes and went to the you know he went in the icu and the doctors kept draining fluid from his lungs so that he would have room to breathe around all the tumors and he stopped eating he had to stop eating actually at home you know once i thought about it I said, yeah he hasn't been eating anything yeah and uh, we were there a couple of days. They tried to stabilize him and um, it was awful. And the doctor came in and said, you need to call your kids. And I was thinking the same thing. I was going to ask him about that. So I called my husband's best friend and, you know, interrupted him in a meeting at work. And I'm like, can you drop everything? Can you pick the kids up? And um, can you pick Curtis's mom up? And he's like, yep, no problem. I said, don't kill anybody getting here, but you need to get here now. 
called the school, called the mother-in-law. And they showed up and he was on so much morphine now that he was almost comatose because he was struggling so hard to breathe that his whole body would lift off the bed. It's horrible to watch when people can't get air. And uh, they took him out of, you know, that state, you know, they cut down on the medication and he was able to mumble a few things to each of the kids and to his mother. And then I, I shoved everybody out the door. I'm like, the kids, no, his mom doesn't need to see this. The kids don't need to see this. And they left and what they had done. So we had a DNR and all that, you know, he's like, yeah, no, you know, I don't want to be resuscitated and blah, blah, blah. I don't want to go on a vent. What they had done while we were waiting for the kids to do uh, get there, they put some sort of, I don't know what it's called, but it's an oxygen thing that does, it's not just on your nose. It like shoots oxygen up into your nose and, you know, um, like a high velocity something. So it helps you kind of breathe, but you're not intubated. And so the kids leave, the doctor comes in, he's now completely comatose and he didn't wake up again because they just kept him that sedated. And I look at the doctor and I said, now what about this oxygen thing? He didn't, you know, he doesn't want that. Yeah. And um, I said, you know, can we take him off? And they're well, well, yeah, but you know, we can't just now that we put him on it, you're going to have to sign something to take him off. You're going to have to make that decision. I'm like, are you kidding me? What? We had all the paperwork in order so that I wouldn't have to do this. And so I just cried buckets. I just, you know, I just sit next to his bed and with my head on his belly and just crying buckets because I didn't know what to do. And I finally said, okay, you know, I asked him, I said, well, how long can he live like this? Because he, he was waiting like another three weeks to do another treatment. It looked like the first treatment worked, and but they could only do it every four weeks. And they're like, no, the chances of him making for another three weeks and that is, that's not going to happen, but he could easily make it a week. And I'm like, oh, no. So I signed the paperwork and then they're like, okay, good. So now we'll cut it down. Every 30 minutes we'll come in and cut it down. So I had to sit down and watch all evening. Oh my God. They cut it off and put a regular, you know, one of those things that they put, put up, you know, with, you know, the regular one with the oxygen. And once they did that, I think it took, you know, it's, it was all such a blur, you know, but I I don't think it took more than four or five breaths and, you know, Mm -hmm. longer and longer apart. And I mean, even though he was, technically kind of in a coma his his whole body was just writhing on the bed i tried lying next to him but i couldn't because you know he was it was it was ugly you know you know i told everybody i told everybody that he you know went to sleep peacefully it was such a lie oh god such a lie you know and i i had nightmares for months about that i bet you know, and I went to see a counselor like three times and she said, yeah, you've got PTSD. And I'm like, I don't have PTSD. I mean, you know, my husband had PTSD from the war and I'm like, I didn't go to war, you know, but, oh, it, yeah, I was scared to go to sleep. I'd see him, I'd see him, I don't know if this is too graphic, but he, 
I begged him to be cremated and he didn't want to talk about that. He's like, I'm not getting cremated. And that's, <sighs> I, that's what I want. Right. And when you can't have a real good conversation about that. So I didn't have him cremated because he didn't, he wanted to be buried in his dress blues. And I, I'd have these nightmares that I would go to the graveyard and I'd, I'd have x-ray vision and see him in the casket under the grass, you know, like decomposing. It was so awful. So awful. you can cut this out if this is too much. No, it's but, okay. It's okay. I, you know what? Like everything that you've been through, uh, of course you have PTSD. Of course you do. Yeah. And I know you told me that he, he, his wish was to die at home, but Oh my God. That I mean, we never made it back. They tried to deliver the hospital bed like two days after he died. I'm like, yeah, no, we don't need But that. if your kids if your kids had seen I know. That- I'm so thankful. I was hesitant about the whole thing, but it's like that is that is the one thing dying, right? Their wishes are like the ultimate. You have to try to honor that. I didn't want my kids to see that. And I was worried about that. You no. know? And, and thank I, you know, God you made that choice to do that because think yeah. about how that they would have been affected uh, by seeing that. That would have in been. In my mind's eye, I had the typical movie view of dying, right? You know, oh yeah, he's going to drift in and out and he's going to, his breathing is going to slow and he's going to s- sleep away, you know? You know, because most of us have that view. I mean, most of us have never seen somebody die. And a lot of people do die like that. So, you know, but it's to me, it's the movie version. I am so, I am still just so grateful that he did. And the doctors were like, wow, that he took a turn for the worse quickly. We expected another couple of months. And there's like, boom, boom, three days he was gone, you know. So even the doctors were stunned. His the, the tumors just exploded in his lungs. They just started growing so incredibly fast. God, just like yeah. So I'm just I am. I'll forever be thankful that my kids didn't see that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And my daughter. And my- you can and you can look back and feel good about that part of it. You know, I mean, I know that you were traumatized. But my daughter was in Puerto Rico. She was uh, in, she worked in a, a geek squad for, you know, a number of years and uh, she had earned a sales trip, you know, she was like the best salesperson or whatever in the whole region. So she earned a trip, like a week trip to Puerto Rico for fun and games and all that. And she's in Puerto Rico when he dies. And cause he told me, he's like, go, you earned it. Just go. Don't worry about me. And you know, yeah. Yeah, so it was it was bad, you know. Um, so and you told me that the kids did not want to go back to school. They only you said they only had a couple of weeks left of school, right? Yeah. So this is he died May sixth, and the funeral was May twelfth, and so after that, I'm like, it's time to go back to school. You know, you got a week or two left, and uh, I think it was less than two weeks. And, you know, they were like, we don't want to go back to school. And I'm like, why not? You know, we need to get on with things here. And uh, they're like, oh, you know, everybody's going to look at us because we lived in a small town and, you know, everybody knew we had been on the news because we're fighting the VA, trying to get them to recognize that the cancer was due to exposure over in the Gulf War. And, you know, the VA was just being uncooperative so we went to the news and we were you know on the local news a number of times they kind of followed our family he was on the tom sullivan show and you know just so 
everybody knew what was going on. Everybody. And we got yeah. a lot of support. So that was great. But I, I don't like being in the limelight. And they were there filming the funeral. There was a huge, huge full military honors funeral. So he was, um, he was a colonel. And for those who don't know, he was one step below a general. Wow. So it was kind of, you know, a, a big deal. 37 big deal. about country. Yeah. Yes. And the VA never did recognize, you know, the kids not kind of got screwed with benefits. I mean, we do have some benefits, but if he had been, if he had died from, you know, like war injuries, basically, we would have been better off. And so they, did, they never I, did. I was still fighting it. He appealed it when he was still alive and, and they still, you know, you know, so they gave him a little, a small percentage for PTSD and some hearing issues, but they wouldn't recognize the cancer at all. God. I'm, I'm trying to appeal it again because, you know, things change and there's a lot of other people that have gotten sick over there. And so we kind of, it's not a class action. They look at the whole. And so who knows? It's not about the money. It's about the government saying, yeah, you're right. You're right. We didn't protect him from ourselves. I mean, you know, you can't protect him from the enemy, but yeah, we, we didn't protect him from, from our own government. They have these big burn piles over there that are full of toxic smoke. And so many people are getting sick with that. And there's been all these hearings in Congress. And oh, man. He was exposed to depleted uranium. And, you know, so, so many people, you know, tens of thousands of young men and women are dying of crazy cancers. So, you know, I'm still, you so know. You're, you're I was, been, yeah, you've yeah. been fighting that for a while. Yeah. I mean, that was right after I've just started fighting it again about a year ago because I had to let it go after a while. I was so angry when he died. I was so angry. And I was like, I annihilated everything around me because I was just so angry, you know, and I kept fighting and they, they screwed up our benefits and I'm supposed to get a pension, you know, and uh, they're like, who, what, we don't have anybody by that social security number. And I had already filed all the paperwork for benefits and it took them five months to send me my first check, you know? And so I was, and so this is funny. Well, funny, I guess, I don't know. I was angry on all the mid, all the military widows behalf because I was okay. I was older. A lot of these widows are young girls. And some men, you know, that have been following their military spouse around, they haven't had an opportunity to finish their job training or their college or whatever. And really, once their service member dies, they need that money to pay the next month's rent. And you, yeah. can't, you can't not pay people for five months. It's, it's. No. I don't even have words for it. It's just, you know, so I was, I was so fired up and so angry on all these women and men's behalves because it's like, you can't treat us like this. I was fine. You know, I got an education. I sold a business. I had money. I was doing the landlord thing. You know, we had a number of homes. And so. Yeah. Plus, plus we planned well. We had saved a lot of money. Um, there was life insurance from the military and there was the trust that we put everything in. So I was fine, but I was angry on everybody's behalf. Yeah. You, you know, okay. Curtis yeah. was, Curtis was 52. He was 54 when he died. And 54. I had, yeah. And I had turned 50. And you were 50. Yeah. 
Okay. So, you know, but after like about six months, I kept trying to fight all this. And, you know, our, our medical insurance got cut off like five times in the first year, you know, computer error supposedly. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And it's hard to get reinstated. Yeah. But I, I had to, I had to let the anger go because it was eating me up. And, you know, and it was, it was anger for, you know, the mistreatment by the military and the government, you know, I mean, I talked to, you know, I had congressmen involved and all sorts of stuff. And, um, I, you know, and I was angry at him dying, yeah. <laughs> you know, how could you do this to me? We have it all, we had all these plans. I don't want to be raising kids by myself. The kids were, I had three 12 year olds and a, and a 14 year old when he died, you know, the other two kids were out on their own living their best life, you know, but, like, I don't want to be a single mom with four, you know, teenagers. They were just getting into that, you know, hormonal crap Nothing. to go through with teenagers. And I knew what I was coming because I'd already raised two. Yeah. And yeah. I was angry at that, you know. and Doing that all by yourself, yeah. right. And I was definitely not interested in another guy. I mean, I was not going to, you know, I, when my girlfriends, you know, my best friends were like, well, you know, maybe... A couple of times, somebody was like, well, you'll find someone again. And I'm like, no, thank you. I'm done with men. Yeah. <laughs> I'm done with them. I can't go yeah. through it again. I mean, people, sometimes people tell you that a little too early. And yeah. you're just like, ah, not really thinking about that right now. Yeah. We could go, you know, we could go down the rabbit hole of what people say a lot. But, man, you know, that could take hours. So, no. Well, you did but, tell me that you felt like you were under a microscope and that I you was. were – you felt like yeah. you were being judged. We talked yeah. a little bit about that. You know, we have been on the news everywhere I went. You know, we got, before he died, we're at Costco in the next town over and somebody comes up and shakes his hand and thanks him for his service and tell him how sorry they are for all his troubles that they saw him on TV, saw us on TV. And, you know, so it's like, yeah. uh, you know, I just felt like, you know, and, and have you been to the graveyard yet? No, I didn't go. I didn't go because of those dreams. And, and it, to me, it means nothing. It's a body in the ground. The, your soul's not there. You, you know, I mean, I totally understand people that go and have picnics there with their kids and people that go there to talk and his friends would go, his military buddies would go. And so they have a, they have a tradition. They put like a penny or a nickel or a dime or a quarter. Well, not a penny, but a nickel, dime, a quarter on top of the gravestone. Uh, and it signifies, I don't remember what all they signify. Like, I think a quarter is like if you served in combat together and a, and a oh. dime is if you, if you are also military and then, you know, and one, if you just know them, but you didn't serve in wartime. And so, you know, I, I would hear other people tell me there's like a whole stack of coins on top of his, you know, of his uh, gravestone. What's that all about? And so I, you know, I, cut and pasted a, an explanation, text, texted it to them. And, but I couldn't go. And the kids didn't want to go. I'd ask them, you want to go? You know, it's, uh, it's Father's Day. It's, it's um, you know, it's Veterans Day. It's Memorial Day. It's his birthday in August. And they're like, no, we're good. We don't want to, you know. Yeah. All those firsts. And the kids didn't, you know. They kind of like, deal with it. We'll celebrate his birthday, but we don't want to we don't want to deal with, you know, death dates or Memorial day or any of that. We're, we're good. Okay. Did it. And they, did you try to get them to go to counseling or again, they had no interest in that. I signed them up for a teen grief group 
And even though they were only 12, the young ones, um, they allowed me to sign them up and the day comes and I told them about it several times. We talked about it. Day comes when it's time to take them and they wouldn't get in the van. Uh, They're like, I'm sitting in a minivan coming. Okay, let's go. No, we're not going. They just decided all of them. They're not, they're not interested in going and hanging out with other kids that I'm like, you're going to have things in common. They did go to Camp Chasm. Um, Camp Chasm, K-E-S-E-M, is an amazing organization. Have you heard of it? No. No. Okay. So any child that has been affected by cancer via a parent or a caregiver, whether the parent dies or recovers, they're eligible to go. And they're, they're put on by all the major universities like UCSF, UC. Santa Barbara, UC Santa Cruz, whatever, but also in other states. When we when we moved here to North Carolina, they went through Duke University, and it's in university students and counselors, and they just have a week of fun, and it's a free overnight camp. You know, uh, I mean, you know, overnight camps for kids can cost fifteen hundred dollars a pop. Yes. I was able to send all four for free. Oh my god, that was so great! So and they great, <laughs> that was so great. They went to camp five weeks after he died. And I was like, I call, you know, I call the camp counselors. I'm like, uh, are you sure this is a good idea? You know, they're pretty, and they haven't really talked about it. And they're like, yeah, we don't, we don't sit down and hash things out. It's not like that. We just have fun and we'll make a memory box. And, you know, that's about it. But they're just there to be with kids to get it. Even if exactly. nobody talks about it. So they don't even need to talk about it. If they're just surrounded by other people who have yep. been through the same thing, that's all that matters. I, I drove to Santa Cruz to pick him up. They're like, can we, can we go back? We want to go back. We don't want to go home. It's like, okay. And oh there my was God. songs for like the four hours home. I'm like, oh, my brain. <laughs> you know? That is awesome. Yeah, so oh and they've gone ever since. You can go until you get out of high school. Now, um, sadly, last year was virtual and this year's virtual also, but hopefully next year they'll get back to it. Yes. They put thousands and thousands of kids. And so the, the college students that are involved in the program, they do all the fundraising. So that's oh, how the kids can go for free. Very cool. And my kids are talking about getting involved in that when they go to college. So that's Oh, good. Yeah. How cool is that? I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes so yeah. everybody can go check yeah. that out. Yeah. That's amazing. A lot of people, you know, I have recommended it to so many people that I stumble across who has a spouse or, or they have cancer. You know, I have, I've, I've, I've made some friends through that camp, you know, the adults, um, uh, several cancer survivors, uh, women with breast cancer and liver cancer actually. But, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I recommend it to everybody because it's just such a fabulous organization. That is awesome. So they go, they went to the camp five weeks after. And I'm home alone for a week and I'm like, what do I do with myself? I mean, I had no idea. It was, I ended up enjoying it in the end, you know, just getting some peace and quiet and a little downtime. I took care of some more paperwork because I was in the middle of all that, but. I yes. Did, I, I drove out stuff. like a day early and stayed at the beach and just walked on the beach and it was so nice. And That's nice. Learned to eat at a restaurant by myself, you know, and it's just all those weird things, you know, and, and nobody knew me down there. So that was great. <laughs> you know, I was, yeah. I was that, you know, that new widow. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this interview with Annalena. I know I sound funny and kind of ridiculous right now. I have this 
midsummer cold thing happening. So I sound like I'm holding my nose when in fact I am not holding my nose. I'm just really stuffy and I can't breathe too well. I hope you're doing better than me this weekend, this 4th of July weekend. I thought Annalena was the perfect person to feature this weekend because it's Independence Day. And Annalena talks about the ways that she had to relearn her independence when she became a widow. She had to become comfortable doing things alone, like going out to dinner by herself or going to a cafe by herself. She embraced her new independence as best as she could. And I think she's a great example for so many of us because this is something that we all struggle with just to see, you know, what we are truly capable of. So we're going to pick up next week with part two of the interview. That's going to be later this week. I hope you all have a wonderful and safe Independence Day. Until next week, believe in the possibilities. Thank you so much for listening to Widow 180, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you're seeking daily inspiration and guidance, you can follow me on Facebook at Widow 180, the community, on YouTube at Widow 180, the channel, and on Instagram at Widow 180. If you're interested in more grief and widowhood resources, including our latest freebie, How to Get Your Life Back Together After Loss, a 10-step checklist, head over to www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie.